Welcome, everyone. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a flyover town hall in La Rose, Louisiana. We're about an hour, hour 15 minutes south of New Orleans near the coast, and we've gathered in a place where the community comes together to talk about and debate some pressing questions in this area. The conversation is a culmination of a week that began at the headwaters of the Mississippi and ends here at the bottom of the Mississippi and the watershed. Along the way, I've listened as you've called and tweeted in about the role that the river plays in your life. Lacey in northern Minnesota told us about how the river informs her Mormon faith and how it was important to the history of the Mormon faith. In Mount Vernon, Iowa, Matt reminded us that we all create our own mythologies about the river. That was really interesting. We're going to talk about that tonight. In Des Moines, Sarah, who leads a group called Practical Farmers of Iowa, acknowledged that she felt caught between conservation and cultivation and that resolutions and solutions were not happening quickly enough. I have a feeling I'm going to hear that tonight as well. In New Orleans, Addie called to say that her Cajun heritage and sense of place were on the line as the coast recedes. Danny told us about work as a fishing guide and concerned that the land that has protected the coast is disappearing and wondered what that's going to mean 50 to 75 years from now. Many, many of you talked about how essential the Mississippi River and the watershed is to your sense of place as, a, as an American. So here we are in La Rose, Louisiana. This is about solutions. What have we learned about the levees, the drainage, the dredging, the diversions, the relocation, the flooding, and all of it in between? I don't know that we're going to get to all of that tonight, but I've been listening really closely and I've heard a lot of people talk with a lot of genuine interest and, and commitment to finding some kind of solution for a lot of these challenges that confront us. So as we begin, I'm going to ask you to think about this. Does this moment, from wherever you are, does this moment in the life of the Mississippi River and the waterways feel particularly precarious and fragile to you? Or do you feel like we're on the cusp of, of figuring this out, of resilience? So I'll ask you to think about that. That's where we'll begin. Our guests, Donald Bogan is co-director of the Bayou Interfaith Shared Community Organizing, or BISCO. Welcome. Good to have you here. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Chief Sherelle Parfait-Dardar, her tribe lives on land that is under threat from rising water. Chief, welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you. Denise Reed studies coastal management at the University of New Orleans. Welcome, Denise. Good to have you, you here. Good to and Lance Nasio is a shrimper and coastal advocate, and you're working with a number of groups up and down the Mississippi River. Welcome. Thank Good you. to have you here. Lance, I'm going to start with you because I feel like with your travels and your work with different groups along the Mississippi River, but you also have this you have this intimate view of what's going on as a shrimper and as somebody whose family has owned land down here, or at least land for a hundred years yes, in this so area. Does this feel precarious to you or does it feel like 
we're on the cusp of figuring this out? I think we're on the cusp of figuring some things out. I mean, there's a lot of challenges and, you know, one solution might hurt other groups, but, uh, you know, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, this land that we've leased, and uh, I was one of those kids that went to school in a boat, you know. Uh, we lived in a trapping camp when I was a kid, and it's about three miles from here. And it's probably, as a crow flies, 25 miles inland from the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, when I was a kid, the marsh was really lush and uh, full of wildlife. And then we went a spell probably around the time of Katrina, where we had a lot of hurricanes and we had a lot of saltwater intrusion. And I saw a lot of the land subside and wash away in those years, you know, because the salt water had changed the dynamics of the grasses and stuff that held the land together. You showed me a black and white photo a few minutes ago of your father. That was my grandfather. Your grandfather cutting through the marsh, right? Cutting down marsh grass. Well, what they were doing, they were making an access for a trap line. You know, that was things that were done uh, when people trapped out in these marshes. They had to have access. So they had these pieces of equipment that they can cut a ditch that would go down with a pirogue and set traps in. And back then, that seemed like a good solution. Well, I mean, it, it provided a livelihood for them. You said, I think, when we were talking about this, they had no idea what the repercussions. No, and you know, all these things combined, you know, and and a lot of it is to do with uh, progression. You know, people making a living, adapting to the land. You know, we did a lot of things that allowed salt water into these marshes, and uh, it actually just exacerbated the problems that started when they levied the Mississippi River. Who else here feeling precarious or feeling like? We're on the cusp of figuring this out. I'm coming right over there to you. Yeah, Alexis. Hi, uh, I'm Alexis Bro. Um, born and raised here. My family's been here since 1790s, since the second boat of Cajuns. And I think down here, it feels more precarious than some of the other voices that you've heard this, this week. Um, we're not over a levee. The bayou's in my front yard. You know, it's my family that has to have that long view. I'm asking people not to think about their careers, but their grandchildren's careers. You know, if we do things now, there are solutions there, but if we can take action now and think beyond our own pocketbooks and beyond the immediacy of our current fiscal situations and look at us as more than a commodity, then we can take those actions that let our grandchildren live the way that our grandparents had the opportunity to. I get the sense that your remarks are directed specifically at what, some corporate interest or who? It's our own interests. I mean, there are shrimpers. My grandpa helped dig the, what the ditches you were referring to are called tranases. You know, back in the 30s and 40s, he helped. And it's our interest. It's not the corporate interest. We work for those businesses. We, our tax dollars come from that. Our hospitals are funded by these businesses. But it's longevity versus immediate gain. And that's a hard balance for any economy and any environment. Dennis, how about you? You live in Minnesota much of the year, but you spend some time down here. Does it feel precarious to you, or does it feel like we're figuring this out? You've got kind of the long view, north and south. Actually, it does not feel as precarious at the other end of the river as it does here. Why? Because for much of the Mississippi, the point source pollution problems that existed 20, 30 years ago are much less. In many respects, the the biosystem that the river is is healthier than it was. But you get down here and it's a different story. 
And it's just because of land sinking, water levels rising, global warming, big influences. Denise, will you speak to that? Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the issues we have to make really clear is that there is no turning the clock back. Uh, the land is sinking more in the last 50 to 100 years than it had done centuries before, and the sea level is rising more than it had done centuries before. So we have to find solutions to the problem that work in the face of higher water levels. And so if our grandchildren, if my grandchildren are going to do the same things in the same place that their grandparents did, they're going to have to do it in a boat. This is a really interesting point, as in solutions that might have worked 25 or 30 years ago aren't viable today. I think that's very much the case. We have to develop solutions that are going to work in the 21st century. And a lot of the things that we started to do about restoring our coast as we understood the land loss problem in the 20th century might have worked then. But as we look at sea level coming up in the future, as we look at the land continuing to sink, then we have to have something that's going to work under the future conditions. Chief, um, I know you feel this pretty intimately, right? Because... The land that the tribe is on is, what, being swamped by water? What's it like? Absolutely. We get a, a southeast wind and we're flooded. Um, my tribe is the Grand Kaidu like Band of Biloxi, Chittimacha, Choctaw. And I've been chief for about 10 years now. I've been fighting even longer than that to try to make people understand. And, and I hear people here talking about their grandchildren. See, in our world, it's not about your grandchildren. It's about the next seven generations. The next seven. See, your grandchildren, that's not far enough. We've been selfish, all of us. We have utilized the resources that our mother has given us because we needed them and we wanted to make a living. What we did not do was do it the right way. Protect first. Then you utilize the resource. What are the choices that the tribe faces because of what's, what's happening on your land? Currently, we still have a little time. If I can get the powers that be to listen to me, um, I've been begging for bulkheading of the whole 11 miles of Shrimper's Row. <laughs> All right. But of course, there's no funding for that. Um, they really don't want to have to do that project. However, that's where the majority of our people are. And if we don't figure out solutions, mm -hmm. our people are going to have to leave. I've had to sit back and watch the relocation efforts of Ile de Jean Charles, and that's very painful. It is not going at all the way it was supposed to, at all. Those people are stressed and they're scared. I do not want to see that happen to my people. This is all we know. Our life is connected to the water. That's all we know. But we've become a lot more responsible with how we've done things. Um, oil and gas had come in and offered our people opportunities for work. I can't complain about that. My husband is employed with oil and gas, and it has afforded my children a good livelihood but they needed to be more responsible. I think they've gotten better at that recently, but we're still not where we need to be. 
And if things don't change quickly, our people may no longer be here. You're listening to Flyover Down the Mississippi. I'm Carrie Miller. We'll be right back. Listening to a flyover town hall in La Rose, Louisiana. We've spent the week listening to you talk about how we're connected with the Mississippi River and the watershed, a lot of the challenges about the water quality and the way we use the river in agriculture and in our sense of who we are and in fishing and the generational connection that we have to the river. And today we've come here to La Rose to talk about the complexity of the solutions. Obviously, we're not going to solve it in this conversation, but we're hearing from a lot of people who are saying, and if we do that, what about this? Which I think gives us a sense all up and down the river of how complicated and difficult this is. Tegan, um, would you just explain for our audience what's going on with this island where they basically have to retreat from the water? Sure. Chief, Chief Shirell's tribe lives nearby uh, another tribe that is related. Some of those folks are your relatives um, on this island called Ile de Jean Charles. And they received a very substantial grant of about $48 million from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to allow them to move north about 40 miles. Many of you in this live audience know about that already, but our listeners nationally won't know about that. And so this tribe has been grappling with how to make that happen and how to preserve their native life ways as they make that transition to an area that is flat, maybe, you know, grassy, nothing like what they call home, living off the land and water. And in my reporting, I've really found that coastal Louisiana represents sort of the last vestiges of American, um, uh, like sort of independence. There's, there's so there was traditionally so much opportunity here. Like you could just have a high school diploma or not even, and get a a great job in the fishing industry and make $70,000 a year. And I think traditionally that that was true in America back in the day where you could make a good living off the land and water and, you don't see that very much anymore. And so I understand the the value of the places. It's not just identity, but it's a way of life that we're talking about walking away from or losing here. One of the things that we've <clears throat> heard through the week and I guess that we've wrestled with is people saying, this is my part of the river and I have to protect that legacy and that livelihood and that may not fit with what goes on in your part of your part of the river. Don, um, what, how does that sound to you? I mean, that's part of the complexity of this, right? Well, part of my job as a community organizer is to fill the room with different ideas. And I would say that we are in a fragile position because we have a lot of solutions at the table. A lot of local people have solutions to the problem. But the conundrum is the financing of those solutions. Um, the permitting of those solutions, 
the state have their own plan. And so one of my main objectives is to merge the state plan with community organizing so the community can have a voice. And, and, and yes, it's, it's different because when we fill the room with different voices and because, you know, down here in the South, we love each other. We have close-knit communities where oftentimes family fight. And how do you facilitate those conversations when, you, when you're saying, hey, you might have to move or, hey, I might have to bring water into this community that if you are archerman or if you fish um, crabs or something, it might affect your livelihood, but it's better for my family. So how do we facilitate those conversations? And so we are in a good place because we have solutions, but this conversation is so fragile and it really takes the community coming together and um, leaving out all of the politics. Let's just have a conversation as a family first. I'm going to walk over here to David, who you're a shrimper. Uh, yes, ma'am. So when you hear Don say that and, and the chief say this about you may have to take a hit on the way your livelihood goes because we're, we have to look at other interests besides yours. How well do you think that's usually balanced? Uh, I, I don't think that's a, a fair statement at all. For people that live in my area, um, I think it's a tragic statement. Um, basically, uh, to save one group or to make sure that nobody gets uh, their area flooded, uh, basically going to draw a line in the sand and create some levee systems uh, that's going to flood an area that I live in. I don't, I don't think that's, that's a fair thing to do, to sacrifice one group of people to save another. Is there any other way to do this, to come up with solutions that some people are basically going to be on the losing end of? Is there any way to do this that there is not going to be some kind of loss? Denise, maybe you have a thought on this. Uh I think another way of thinking about it is, is to think about what a, a common future for all of us looks like and, and work on a common future that everybody can, can have some buy-in. I mean, the key thing is it's going to be different from how it is now, and it's going to be very, very different from how it was uh, in the past. And I, and I think at the minute we're in this position of, of realizing what is facing us and having a project here and a project there and a project there and there are pros and cons from different viewpoints to all of them but what we really need is a kind of vision of what we can actually get to where various people who who uh, work on the coast in different kind of ways that with different kinds of resources can actually see a future for themselves recognizing that we're going to have to live differently from how we do now understood that but we also don't want to be disingenuous here it is true that some people are not going to like what that solution looks like ted yes You're not. <laughs> of course uh you know this is a a, a very serious situation um you know, live i've lived here 67 years uh, and have been an active participant in coastal restoration initiatives uh, in this basin. And, uh, you know, we've since back in the early 70s, we've said uh, reconnecting the Mississippi River to the estuaries is fundamental, is, is the major tool in restoration. Uh, and, you know, we're, we have a, a cancer eating at us, and if, if we're going to fight it with one hand behind our back and not use all the tools that we have to, to fight this, we're going to die. We're not going to make it. But what do you say when you say 
some of those tools may not benefit David's shrimping living. And I don't know how many years your family has done this, David. Is it, is it a generational thing in your family? Five generations now well, we've been doing this. Um, a lot of our biggest concerns is that you're going to divert water uh, from the Mississippi River. I don't think the water in the Mississippi River has the same amount of sediment that it had 100, 200 years ago. I don't think the water quality in, that, in the river is what it was 100, 200 years ago. Uh, we've got a dead zone right now in the Gulf of Mexico the size of two small states, and that's because there's so much fertilizer being used up the Mississippi River. Uh, we're, we're in fear that a lot of that water that's going to be diverted into our estuaries is basically going to kill all of the seafood in our estuaries. That's a big concern. So, Ted, what about that? I, I don't buy into that, okay? I, I think clearly there are examples uh, in, in further west in uh, Wax Lake, where the Mississippi River comes into the estuaries. Uh, there's great fisheries associated in that area. It may be different. You may not be catching speckled trout or shrimp in Lafitte. You may be catching crawfish and freshwater catfish. But there will be fisheries uh, reestablished. But we, we, you know, we can't have it all. We have some very uh, critical sacrifices that need to be made before we can do the meaningful changes that will be necessary. Back to David and then to the chief. Does that mean that my family has to sacrifice? Uh, Louisiana, 100 million pounds of shrimp landed in Louisiana last year. Do we have to sacrifice a whole industry so that people can grow a few more acres of marshland? Chief? I can definitely empathize with Mr. David. A lot of our people are in to the shrimping, and, and I can throw a cast net better than a lot of men, okay? I enjoy our, our livelihood. Um, a lot of the, the factories have shut down in my community. I think there might be two left. I started out in a shrimp factory at 15 years old. It's just what we did. When you come to thinking about who can be saved and who can't, right, we don't like hearing that at all. We think everything should be saved. But the reality is we're too far past that point now. We just aren't. All we've ever heard, it's not cost effective. It's not cost effective. That's how they're basing their decisions. It's not based on people and livelihoods and all this other stuff. It's whether or not it's cost effective. And the area has to generate enough tax revenue to support those projects. Now, on top of that, you've got whoever company has a vested interest and who has the biggest vested interest. Who's got that? Oil and gas. It just is what it is. So people like our people are forced to be sacrificed most of the time. All right? I don't like it, but until people start divesting from certain things that are damaging our coast and bringing more damage than, than what we can even take on. I mean, Jesus, we're past that point. Um, things aren't really going to change that much, and it's people like our people who are going to be seen as not cost-effective. Lance? So, uh, David had said something about the dead zone in the Gulf, but one thing that uh, letting the water flow through the marshes is going to clean the water up for the Gulf. So it actually is going to, uh, you know, and, and where I'm at, the property I lease is uh, for about 25 years, they've been actually doing that. And uh, I mean, it's made a big difference. It's, uh, it's getting back to the way it was when I was a kid. 
you know, uh, different signs are showing back up where uh, we didn't have for a lot of years. Uh, the marsh is just covered in cattails. I noticed that this year that, you know, as more cattails than I've ever saw since I was a kid. And that's one of the things that shows that, you know, fresh water is helping it come back to what it once, once was. And that's what keeps the land together. I want to pick up on the dead zone because this is something that upriver they care about it in Minnesota, they care about it in Iowa, but I don't know how real it is, what that actually means. Is there somebody here, Denise, maybe, maybe you could speak to just what the size of this dead zone and what it means. And then I'll, I'll ask some others of you to think about whether you believe there is invested or there is interested, concerned about this upriver. Okay, so think about that. Denise? So what's the dead zone? So this is an area off of the coast of, of Louisiana and extends over into Texas. And it's, it's in the Gulf of Mexico, so it's not in the wetland area where we are. And so every year, a very uh, high nutrient-laden water comes out of the mouth, the mouth of the Mississippi during a flood. And it's fresh water. And so what happens is it kind of floats on top of the salt water of the Gulf of Mexico. And so uh, the sediment that makes it muddy, the big muddy, all of that falls out fairly quickly. And then the sun does its job on the nutrients and we get wonderful phytoplankton blooms on the surface. And that's great until they sink. And then they sink to the bottom and the water doesn't mix very well because the fresh water separates from the salt water. And all of those phytoplankton, all of that algae that has just grown perfectly normally, if you like, except there's quite a lot of nutrients, so there's a lot of it, it sinks to the bottom. And then nature does its work again and it decomposes and it uses up the oxygen in the lower part of the water. So you can't really see it from the surface. You can fly over the Gulf of Mexico and you can't see it. It's under the surface of the like water. It looks like healthy water if you're from flying over From the surface, it. it looks okay. It's on the bottom. And so it's a very large area, hundreds of miles wide across from Louisiana to Texas, tens of miles stretching out. And it's meters deep, you know, feet deep, tens of feet deep in some areas. It doesn't very often come right to the top. So you can't really see it. It's kind of hidden down there. But because there's no oxygen in the water, then any critter that can't move is going to suffocate, essentially. Any critter that can move is going to do its best to get out of there as soon as it can. But because it's such a very large area then there's a limit on how far these animals and fish and shrimp and things like that can move to get out of the way. Okay. So, so it's a kind of hidden thing. You can't go visit it. You can't go see surface. it. But Got we it. can measure it and we know that things die down there. So, sir, on this side, my question was, do you think the people where I live and work and south into Iowa understand this, understand what this really means? I think it's it's probably hard for them to imagine exactly what's going on down here. And, and I feel like a lot of them definitely have uh, good intentions because I've heard them on the show. But to me, one of the big answers is that uh, we're talking about two things, the coast and the river. And we love both of them. The coast is degrading. And it seems to me that we can't get away from the fact that the river is the answer, probably, to the coast problem. How so? Well, <clears throat> I teach about how the river made our coast and the land that we're on right now. 
And uh, a lot of people in the room know this, this story. It started 7,000 years ago. The river went towards where the Atchafalaya is and laid down land. And then it moved to St. Bernard Parish, where the Chandeliers are, and laid down land there. And then it moved to Lafouche, and it laid down this land. So about every 1,000 years, the, the river moves that way. And we are dealing with the unintended consequences right now of when we levied the river in 27 and around that time. And we tried to control the river. And for a little while, that seemed like a good idea because uh, we weren't flooding houses anymore. Mm -hmm. But then it led to, to the problem that we're having right now. I think to solve the problem, we need to go 200 years in the future and think about controlling the river a different way, that, not, that, not making I mean, it go to New Orleans necessarily. That is a heavy lift. You know, yeah, it's I get that. Yeah. My livelihood, my house, my family, rightly so. It's a lot to ask people to project 200 years into the future and make sacrifices. Yeah. But maybe if you think about history, that's how people used to deal with the river before we caught on with this uh, assumption of permanence. Right now, we have an assumption of permanence. Like we build something, we think it should last forever. But that's not the way it was always on the coast. Don, I want to come back to you on this because in some ways what is going on with this is also going on on a, on a macro level with our politics and you know, our, our ideas of who we are. Some of this is it may hurt immediately in my life or it won't affect my life, but I have to also contribute to the common good. That's the challenge in some ways to this, isn't it? Yeah, so the conversation has to begin is um, what are we willing to sacrifice as far as our culture and who are we willing to sacrifice as far as our neighbors? And once you begin that conversation, then you go to restitution. If I'm going to give up this, you are the politician, you have the purse, then you have to make ensure me that I can continue my livelihood somewhere else. And that's my job with the people. Let's have that initial conversation. Let's have these initial kind of quarrels with what are we willing to sacrifice? Who are we willing to sacrifice? And then let's hold our um, elected officials accountable and say that if I have to give this up, then how can my family, um, seven generations from now, how can my family uh, pursue or live on? Chief, would you speak to that? Yeah. Yes, and, and look, he's spot on. However, one of the problems, and we know this is true, is Louisiana, especially in the coastal areas, is so diverse. All right? What you have right here, five minutes down the road, is something totally different. You have shrimping here. You got oil and gas here. You got It's so different. And you have to find a way to cater to all of these people. You're listening to Flyover Down the Mississippi. I'm Carrie Miller. We'll be right back. Flyover Down the Mississippi River is produced by Minnesota Public Radio News, Iowa Public Radio, and WWNO in New Orleans. It's a collaboration with The Water Main at American Public Media, helping Americans understand the value of water in our everyday lives. You're listening to Flyover Radio Down the Mississippi. Our guests, 
Donald Bowen, co-director of the Bayou Interfaith Shared Community Organizing, or BISCO. Chief Sherelle Parfait-Dardar, her tribe lives on land that's under threat from rising water. Denise Reed studies coastal management at the University of New Orleans. And Lance Nasio is a shrimper and a coastal advocate. I'm Carrie Miller. The discussion continues now. Denise, you were going to say. Yeah, I think I think the idea of um, the idea of change is the important thing. I'd, I'd I'd hate to think of it as sacrifice, but the idea of being willing to change and everybody changes a bit, and maybe we can all change together, and nobody then is is sacrificed seems to me to be a better a better way of thinking about it. You know that we are fundamentally resource constrained here in terms of this is a huge problem. There are thousands of people affected down here in the coastal areas where we are today. And yet this is a nationally important resource with all of the grain from the Midwest being exported out of the Mississippi River, steel, rubber, all kinds of other things coming in through the mouth of the Mississippi River. Somebody has to work near those ports in order for that transportation to occur. Somebody has to be here to harvest the resources if people want to eat wild-caught shrimp and wild-caught oysters. We can't just leave wholeheartedly and have the nation still I have the great things that it relies on from Louisiana. So this isn't about just why don't you all move to Missouri or something. That's, that's not what it's about. It's about how we can still live here, how we can have a sustainable resource base. So there are still wild caught shrimp that are great value. So there are oysters and alligators. So we can retain elements of the culture here in this area. We're just going to have to do it differently from how we've done it in the past. This and because we have so few resources, because these projects are so big and so expensive, choices have to be made about which one to do first. And I think that's the problem that we get into, that this one's being done and that one's not. Right. And a larger kind of resource pie would really help us move more people towards a better future. Don, um, I, I feel like, and Chief, and actually our whole panel here, the patience that you've required from people with vested interests in the solution is pretty extreme, isn't it? Yes, it, it's very extreme. But what I often try to communicate to people, as Simone was saying, is that we, we always changing. Um, in high school, I made, in high school, during the summertime, I made $600 a week working at McDermott. Know why? Because my grandfather worked at McDermott. My daddy worked at McDermott. My auntie worked at McDermott. All of my cousins worked at McDermott. That's where the money was. I got out of my bed every day early in the morning and went to McDermott. And I worked. I was a welder helper. Right out of school, I became a welder. McDermott is no longer there. So I'm not a welder anymore. So I think we have to train our next generation, um, train them to do something different which also can contribute to their community. But people, patients run thin, it runs low, and that's why we have to have many, many conversations. Chief, would you say something about that? Well, as a Native American, <laughs> you know, um, our people have been in our territory since time immemorial. We've already given up more than enough. I refuse to give up our homes. I'm going to do whatever it takes. We have always had to adapt. We're still adapting today. And a lot of it came from no fault of our own. You know, 
And we recognize, yes, things cannot be done the same way that they've been done. And we've been speaking to that for over 40 years now. My, mostly my men, my shrimpers, you know, my, my commercial fishing men would go out and they would see land and then the next minute it was gone. And they would get there and try to talk to the powers that be and say, hey, we have a problem. But because they didn't hold degrees and they, they didn't have certifications, they were never listened to. Their knowledge was never utilized. I think we're starting to make changes there. Because, and I'm so thankful for that because we have so many different organizations now, um, you know, like USDA and all of these different organizations that are actually wanting to learn from the communities, from the local knowledge, you know, that we've had and that we've been trying to bring forth. And look, change is going to come whether we want it or not. I, I would think it would be smarter if we were the ones that were in charge of our change and worked with our planet rather than against her. Let me go to Henry here and then to Lance. So I think, you know, uh, this is a really uh, uh, good discussion. I think a, center, a centerpiece to uh, looking at how we solve this for all parts of the community uh, has been discussed and has been incorporated the best it can be at this point in our state master plan. Um, you know, it's a 50-year plan. We all recognize we're not going to be able to save everything that we had in the 1930s before the levees were put in place. But I think with science and with identifying the important cultural and economic corridors, that we have a good start with the master plan in this discussion uh, at saving what's critical to our lives down here. But there's no doubt that a master plan picks winners and losers, to use a political term, right? I mean, there's just no question about that. Well, I don't think we're going to save everything, you know. Um, but I think, you know, historically, we've been having to make those type of decisions for many, many years. Here in Lafouche, we had to lay out a levy system way back in the 60s and say, where is it going to run? And, you know, we had an excellent group of businessmen on our levy district that have done that. And we have other excellent groups now that are saying, you know, what's really important to saving uh, the economic base so people can have jobs. And at the end of the day, it saves our culture because then that gives us you know, jobs and a place to live here. Is this your dad that you came with? Yes, this is Jim Boulay. And Jim, would you, uh, you have the historical perspective here. I, I'd be interested in hear what you think about what your son just said. Uh, well, well, right now, uh, politics is, uh, is, is uh, very discouraging to me, but that uh, we have to come up with some politicians that really Go, go to look looking at solutions and uh, not not playing around uh, with uh, with uh, their jobs and uh, so you're looking for some political courage you yeah. you haven't seen that in this well, I haven't seen it in the in the national government I haven't seen it in the state government and so uh, I uh, just feel that that is part of the solution. I'm glad you came. Thank you. Lance. So one of the solutions I was a part of that they were talking to do with the fishermen who was going to be displaced with diversions and coastal restoration projects was uh, 
they were training the fishermen to, uh, you know, use their knowledge of the waters to uh, help with uh, marsh restoration, planting, and stuff like that. So there was a group of about 25 fishermen that were trained in uh, water survival, CPR, you know, an array of things we were trained in, but uh, it never came to fruition. We had this training, and we were promised jobs, and no jobs ever came from it. So, you know, that's one of the things I think that should be looked at when uh, – when fishermen are going to be displaced is have some sort of, you know, ways and means for them to make a living until things get back to where, you know, they figure out what they're going to do. Oh, yes, sir. Sorry um, about that. We're talking about solutions tonight. And um, one thing that I really haven't heard is funding of the solutions. Um, we haven't talked at all about the culpability of the oil and gas industry. When oil and gas was discovered in Louisiana, Louisiana made a bargain with the devil. And um, a lot of the restoration that I understand is being done right now is being funded from the settlement from the BP Deepwater Horizon. Mm -hmm. If you talk about saltwater intrusion, you you talk about um, hunters and trappers making small canals and trenaches. That did not cause anything near like the environmental damage that the oil companies did when they dug their canals. But Tegan and I were talking about this on the way down. I mean, the oil companies, BP in the settlement, is providing money that is, as you just noted, right, pretty important to restoration. Yeah, I'm not and, saying they didn't do damage at the beginning, but this is the complexity of this, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and where did some of that money end up? Some of that many money ended up in Montana and places inland that were in no way, shape, or form affected by the, the oil. And it's politics like this that have gone on in the state and has gone on in the nation. And Louisiana ends up at the short end. So the solution when you talk about the oil and gas industry sounds like what in your view? They are legally required to go ahead and close the canals that they dug. There have been lawsuits that have been filed. Um... The federal government isn't taking any action. So they're not being forced to live exactly, up to their exactly, commitments. Exactly, exactly. But you're not here to say, we got to get rid of the oil and gas. No. Yes, because no, that's not the solution no, either. But, but they were part but of the problem. Make do what they committed to They were to part do. of the problem. They should be part of the solution. And it goes beyond the BP Deepwater Horizon. It goes <clears throat> to the first canal that was dug. Okay. Sir? Um, my biggest thing is we keep saying that you know, we want our voices to be heard, but I thought this room would be packed. And look at all these empty chairs. You know, we we sometimes we side with the oil and gas company because they provide us jobs, but they should be held accountable. We should be able to work it out together. We don't want to kick them out. We want them here. We also sometimes tend to vote against our own interests. You know, I mean, this is how many people here, I don't want anybody to raise their hand, but believe that you know, man-made climate change is contributing to our, you know, rising water levels. And sometimes we tend, as a community, to vote against our best interests. And I just, I thought this place would be screaming so our voices could be heard. As far as um, individuals' voices being heard, one of the challenges as an organizer is teaching people how to play chess and not checkers. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of things that happen in our government, and it's easy. I'm one of them. 
it's easy to blame a politician, but when you go in that politician office and you talk to him, and then he explain to you the tax base, and then he explain to you the individuals that come to the town hall, then he or she say, Donald, I'm not hearing what you're saying. Then I have to go back into the community and I have to say, I know you guys are tired, but you have to get involved in the political, it all starts with us getting involved in the political process. That's how your voice is heard. Whenever the state master plan come out and they have public comment, I watch individual after individual go up there and they get a public comment and guess what? Nothing happened. Know why? Because they comment did not fit into the structure of the plan. So my job is to do is to educate the community of the structure of the plan and how I can take your solution or your comment and put it within the structure of the plan. And if they deny, it's hell to pay. Denise? So I continue to think that we would be, the, the, the issue here is not that we don't understand things, it's that the solutions require so much money, much, much more than anybody really thought they would, and that money is frankly not available. I think, I think one thing that we need to focus on is getting ready for the next time we have the attention of the nation and the world. Think about that what we learned. That sounds kind of ominous, Denise. I mean, that it's sounds gonna like happen. a hurricane or a we, big flood. Everybody in this room knows there is going to be another hurricane. And there's a bad one out there, right? So what do we want to do when that happens? When all of a sudden there is a lot of money available in the same way that they came after last year's hurricane season, mm -hmm. what do we want that to be spent on that provides a better future for all of us, not just some of us. And so I think if we can focus on this idea of giving up an inch and taking a foot together and being ready for the next time that we have, that we are the focus of attention, that resources will become available. That's the only time the federal government is gonna come help us down here. When there's a disaster and the rest of the country is saying you've gotta go help them. So that is, that's actually where I wanted to, to bring the, the conversation to this point. Do you feel like your voices are, you know, truly being heard as these decisions get made, whether you like the decisions or not? And I don't just mean heard in this area, heard up and down the Mississippi and all the places that affect where you are. Sir, you're, you are shaking your head right there. Why? I think... Um I think in order for everybody to kind of come together, I think the most, I've been in Louisiana for 10 years and I think the most beautiful thing about this state is that everybody's an environmentalist at heart. And I think if we have, and if we realize how much we have in common, as opposed to how much differences I think we have manufactured in Washington or in Baton Rouge, mm -hmm. I think the common ground that we have of a love of this place and of the culture and of the landscape, that's a common thread. And I think we all have to be a little bit more vulnerable about what we're willing to give up if we're all gonna move forward together. So I think if all of us give an inch, I think we can all move forward a foot together. And I think that kind of vulnerability is really important. And I think that what brings us together in this state is our attraction to the landscape <clears throat> and to the culture and to everything else, whether you've been here for millennia, whether you've been here for 250 years or whether you've been here for 10 years. And I think the distractions of the politicians um, misconstruing what it is that needs to be done here is distracting us on the ground floor and causing these arguments about who's a winner and who's a loser. Because we're all gonna lose. We're all gonna lose no matter what. So I think that we can plan out who's gonna win or how we're gonna win or how that's gonna be apportioned a little bit better if everybody's willing to be a little bit more vulnerable in the bigger picture. And I think going back to Alexis's, um, 
Going back to her first point, I think the really important thing is making politicians realize that environment is economy and poverty is expensive. The more that we pollute or the more that we have to relocate people, the more the entire country is going to pay into that. And that's going to affect, this is going to be the bellwether, as Alex was saying. Louisiana is the barometer for where America is going. Yeah, well so that's said. going to affect everybody. Chief, how does that sound to you? I couldn't have said it any better. He's very right. You know, and, and I've been saying this. I've spoken a lot of times over the past, um, well, goodness, like 15 years now, uh, addressing the same issue. And what I try to let everybody understand is, is okay, sure, we're, we're Louisiana. Yes, we're on the coast. Yes, we're dealing with all of these issues. But guess what? So are you. We are on the front lines right now. But you will be too. So rather than continually watching the politicians fight and everybody fighting and know my issue's more important, no, we're all important. Every last one of us. And we need to do something about it now. We should be leading. We have a saying. You have to figure out which bird you're going to be. Now, in the United States, our, our bird is the eagle, right? I love the eagle. That's also one of our tribal symbols. But what are you, a sitting eagle or a flying eagle? It's up to you. I choose to fly. That's why I speak. Somebody will listen. Wow. I, I don't know if I can think of a better way to end. Um, I just have to say, you guys wish I could bring you all north. I really appreciate your candor and your willingness to educate me on the issues. I know you'll be educating everybody up and down the river who's listening. Thank you very much. Fly Over Down the Mississippi is a partnership between Minnesota Public Radio News, Iowa Public Radio, and WWNO in New Orleans. It's a collaboration with The Water Main from American Public Media. Our producers are Marquita Fornoff, Elizabeth Shockman, Suzanne Pico, Jeff Jones, Manda Lilly, and Joe Erickson, with help from Annie Baxter at The Water Main. Johnny Vince Evans is our technical director. Thanks to Katherine Perkins and everyone who hosted us at Iowa Public Radio. And thanks to Tegan Wendland and the staff at WWNO. 